my goodness, we have such a great passage today, Psalm 84. This might be one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, and we are just going to walk straight through it today. Okay, so good? All right, let's all stand up together for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 84. And since we're going to walk through this whole passage, we're going to go ahead and just read it straight down top to bottom from the outset just to kind of get our minds wrapped around it. Here we go, Psalm 84, starting in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and even the swallow finds a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house and ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper at the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace in our lives. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we have your word uh, to tell us who you are and what you have for us. And so, God, I pray in the next few moments as we dig into this psalm that we would do so humbly recognizing the authority that your scripture has, that we don't try to make it say what we want to say, but rather we um, make it say what you want it to say that we might walk out of this place knowing more fully the blessings and the riches and the favor and the honor and the glory that you have for those who love you. Lord, it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. All righty. Well, if you have been part of social media at all, in your life, you are probably pretty familiar with this sign right here. Um, it used to be called a number sign. Or if you're on the phone trying to talk to a human being, you might have to press that pound sign a couple of times to get through. But with the birth of social media, this number sign, this pound sign has been rebranded and reworked and redefined into hashtag. We all probably know what hashtag is, but just in case you don't, a hashtag is almost like a footnote at the end of a post that you make on social media. It's, it's a statement or it's a word or a phrase that gives more context to what you're saying or maybe even gives like a focus point to what you're saying. And this kind of blew up and, and as hashtags became more popular, this phenomenon 
became more popular known as hashtag blessed. We all heard of that? Hashtag blessed, probably uh, most popular in you know, 2014. Uh, they actually made a movie called hashtag blessed last year that I saw last night. Uh, I didn't see it, uh, I saw online. And I really wanted to watch it, but I didn't have time. Anyways, um, this phenomenon, hashtag blessed, came out. Uh, on Instagram alone, there's over 118 million posts with hashtag blessed on it. And again, you've probably seen it. Here's how it generally goes. Something good has happened in my life. I got a new car. I got a new job. I went on a trip. My family gets together. I make a post about it. And at the end of it, I put hashtag blessed, right? It's all good. Uh, all of these are all throughout social media and generally revolves around that, except for one lone post that recounts this blessing of butter being individually packaged. For whatever reason, that is his hashtag blessed. But this begs the question as, is that what blessed means? Is that what being blessed means? Because what the world seems to define it as is good things are coming to my life. Good circumstances are coming to my life. I have good fortune. Therefore, I am hashtag blessed. You generally don't see people posting tragedy in their life with this hashtag, right? Like you don't see someone post, hey, my, jerk, or my boss is a jerk today. He declined my vacation request. Hashtag blessed, right? You don't generally see people say, hey, my dog's got irritable bowel syndrome and is at the vet. Hashtag blessed, right? That's usually not the case. Usually it's surrounded by good circumstances, by good events in our life. But again, that begs the question, is that what it means? In Psalm 84 today, the writer uh, says this word blessed multiple times and and what I think uh, he's going to communicate is that this concept of being blessed by God has very little to do with your surroundings, has very little to do with the things that you have in life, the jobs that you have, the stuff that you have, the circumstances that you go through, that you can be blessed whether you're in the, the highest peak of your life or whether you're in the lowest valley of your life. This concept of being blessed by God can be with you. If you were here a few weeks ago, Pastor Lee walked us through Psalm 103. And in Psalm 103, there was that phrase, bless the Lord, O my soul. And he talked a lot about that word bless right there. And in the Hebrew, it's uh, barak, and it means to uh, bring thanksgiving, to bring praise, to kneel before, to submit before. That's the word bless, barak. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to take all of that and throw it away. Because the word here is a completely different word. Psalm 103, the word blessed is Barak. In Psalm 84, the word blessed is Asher. That's the word in the Hebrew. And Asher means com something completely different. Barak means to bring thanksgiving or praise. Um, Asher here means uh, to have happiness, to have joy, to be blessed. And I would go far enough that the writer's trying to communicate is that when you have this, this asher, this, this happiness, this joy in God, that along with it comes contentment. That no matter what season of life that you're in, you can have joy and happiness. And I love how the, the writer unpacks this psalm and how he 
communicates how we can have this joy and happiness and contentment in God because he writes it almost through the, his own vantage point. So if you have your Bibles with you, at the very top of the psalm, uh, there's usually a, a few words that give like some, some context to what the, what's going on in the psalm. And typically at the top of that psalm, it says, you know, written by David. This psalm was not written by David. At the top of it, it says, this psalm was written by the sons of Korah, which kind of sounds like a heavy metal band. Uh, it's not a heavy metal band though. It was a group of people that worked in the temple at the time. Uh, we know a little bit of the history of Korah and the descendants of Korah, and it's a pretty troubled past. And, and we're going to get more into that later, but, but what's important for us right now is what we know about the sons of Korah is that they were doorkeepers and custodians to the tabernacle in Jerusalem that, that people would come to to um, make sacrifices and worship God. And so... What we're going to see in this psalm is that this writer, one of the sons of Korah, is almost writing this psalm through the vantage point of a doorkeeper at the, at the tabernacle. And it's almost like he's, he's looking around, observing the things going on, and he's recounting how in the world he has contentment and joy and blessing and happiness and asher in God, and how you and I can have that as well. And Spoiler alert, has nothing to do with what's going on around us and has everything to do with, are you centering your life around God? And so what I want to do is I want to walk through the psalm and see how it prescribes for us to find this blessing in God. And, and the psalm breaks itself down into three sections, and I just want to look at the main point of each section, and I, I'm going to give you it all right now. Here's the, the three ways that the, that the writer communicates that we can find blessing, happiness, joy, um, contentment in God. It's this, finding rest in God, that God is your rest, finding strength in God, God is your strength, and finding joy in God, God is your joy. Those are the three points. If you're a note takers and you get the three points and you're done, you can check out. You don't have to listen to a single word I say from here on out. Here we go, right? We're going to walk through those three things. God is our rest, God is our strength, and God is our joy. All right, let's pick up verse one. It says this. I'm going to have to drink a lot. Um, sorry, just twinges in my throat. Here we go. Psalm 84 verse one starts out with this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the court of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy for the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord, my King and my God. Blessed, Asher, are those who dwell in your house and ever singing your praise. And so the writer of the psalm, opens it up and, and, and shares with us that the ones that find blessedness and happiness and contentment in God are the ones that, that dwell in the house of God, the, the ones that, that find their home among the presence of God. And again, he's, he's kind of viewing it through the vantage point of a doorkeeper. I can imagine he's standing outside the tabernacle and just looking around and he's just looking at the trees and he sees the birds come and, and form their nests in the trees and he starts to reflect in his own mind and he says, look at these sparrows, look at these birds. Even they have places to call their homes among the altars of God. If they can find a home among God, surely we can, right? 
Surely we, as humans made in the image of God, can find their place in the presence of God. And I think what he's really getting at here is, is not just finding a house, like four walls, to step into, but more so finding a place to find rest in, that we find our rest in God. And again, that's our first point for today, is that if you want to find blessing, contentment, and happiness, then you need to find rest in God. Has everyone heard the phrase, there's no place like home? Right. Growing up, never really understood that, that phrase. Like, I just wanted to go and go and go and go. Like, like home is not where I wanted to be. Even uh, Lottie, uh, my three-year-old, every morning when she wakes up, uh, she comes to me and she says, what are we doing today, Dad? She has very little interest in staying at home. She has very, uh, a lot of interest going outside and going and doing things and, and going on adventures. And the older that I get, which I get, I'm 33, it's fine, but I'm still getting older. The older I get, and the, more importantly, the more tired I get, the less I want to go do things. The less I just want to go home. Amen? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. The more I just want to go home. Because at home, I can rest, right? Like, I can go take a nap in my office and rest, but there's a sense of uneasiness when I'm somewhere else. When I go home, all of a sudden, like, my shoulders can drop, my guard can be let down, and I can just fully rest. And the, the psalmist here is, is communicating the same thing for us, that, that, that we're not just finding a house with God, but we're finding a home where we can rest with God. He opens up the psalm with, how lovely is your dwelling place? My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. It's like, you know, when you go on vacation or you go traveling to visit family and you have a great time, but it gets to a point in the vacation that your, your heart and your soul is just longing to be at home so you can just breathe and rest. And, and that's what God is for us. That's what God's supposed to be for us. Christianity was never meant to be um, a, a thing where, where you come to God and you just work and work and work and work and you're just burdened by work before God. It's never meant to be that way. It, it was meant, not, not meant to be a, a, a place of burden. It was meant to be a place of rest. And that's why Jesus said, come all you weary, come all you heavy laden, that you might find rest in me. It's not meant to be a place where you work yourself up to God. It's meant to be a place where you come in and you rest in the finished work that God has already done. Hebrews expands on that and it puts it this way. Hebrews 4, 9 says this. It says, therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Now, now what's he getting at here? He's comparing our lives and, and more importantly, our salvation to what God did in the creation. So in the creation, God worked six days and created everything in this universe. And then on the seventh day, he rested from that work. And he's comparing it to us saying that we also have spent our life working. And in order for us to enter into rest, what we first need to do is stop working. You can't work and rest at the same time. Wives, you hear me? You can't work and rest at the same time. Stop telling your husbands to do that. I'm just kidding. Um, my wife's not here right now, so I can say that. Um, you have to stop working in order 
to rest. And, and here's some biblical definition for you. When the Bible starts to use this word works, what it means is, the definition for works is you trying to attain salvation outside the grace of God. Right? So, so it's you trying to follow the law enough. It's you trying to do enough good things. It's you trying to be spiritual enough. It's you trying to give enough. It's you trying to work your way up the ladder of God. That is works. And what this passage is saying here is that you will never find rest in God until you stop trying to work yourself to God. So what you need to do, if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, what you first have to do is say, the work is finished. I don't need to try to gain my salvation. I need to trust in God who's already done that work for me. And what you'll find is, is that when you rest, uh, that, that rest becomes all the more sweet when the work is finished. For example, uh, I've told you before that uh, my family and I moved into a uh, home about a year and a half ago, and we completely renovated the home, like kitchen, bathroom, or not, uh, sorry, not bathroom, kitchen, living room, rooms. Uh, the one thing that we didn't get to was the bathroom, and so we just ran out of energy. And so the hallway bathroom uh, remained as it was, completely functional, it was fine, it just wasn't renovated. Well, about six months ago, I mustered up just enough energy to completely destroy it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I went in, ripped the shower down to the studs, removed the toilet, removed the vanity, removed the floor. It was just a bare room. And then what happened? I ran out of energy. Wives, don't you love that? Don't you love when your husbands get just enough energy to ruin something and then not fix it? Yeah, that's what it was for us. So for months, when people would come over, we didn't have a bathroom for them to come to. So we had to send them through our mountain of laundry in our bedroom. Come on, everyone has a mountain of laundry, right? In their bedroom. Yeah, amen. <laughs> we had to send them through the mountain of laundry in our bedroom to our master bathroom in order for them to be able to use the bathroom. Uh, and it was embarrassing every time, but it's fine. Anyways, a, uh, a few months later, I finally mustered up enough energy to go finish the bathroom, right? We went in there, uh, put in the shower, did the floors, uh, toilet bandy, the whole works. It's all done now except the baseboards, which I'm sure I'll finish 10 years from now. So we got it all done. And you know what happened? I realized that my rest within my home felt all the sweeter now that that project was done that I didn't realize that an unfinished project over here was actually hindering my ability to fully rest within my own home. The same is true with us and God. You can come into church. You can pray. You can read your Bible. You can sing. You can go to small groups. You can serve in ministry. But if you are still trusting in your unfinished work, you will never find rest in God. You will come here day in and day out, and year in and year out, and wonder, why do I even go? I don't feel any better. What you need to do is first, try, not, not, not try to finish the work yourself, but trust in the finished work of God. You need to place your faith in Jesus, and let me get more specific here. You need to trust in the finished work of Jesus, dying for your sins on the cross, and then resurrecting in righteousness three days later that we might be invited into that. That's what it means to rest in God. 
and pulling it back to Psalm 84, that's what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to dwell in the presence of God, dwell in the courts of God as something to attain, but rather as something to rest in the completed work that God has done for you already. That's the first step to finding blessedness, to happiness, to contentment, is to trust in the work that God has already done and find rest in him. All right, let's keep going. So the first thing is the Lord is our rest. Second one is the Lord is our strength. Picking it back up in verse five, it says this, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the ways of the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. So we see that, we, that the writer's describing God as his strength. Blessed are those who place their strength in God. Now, as the writer expands on this thought, uh, of God being the strength, he begins to describe uh, the journey that the Israelites would have taken back then in that, in that um, time. So remember the vantage point of the doorkeeper at the tabernacle. Uh, if you haven't heard, uh, or if you don't know much about this Zion, it mentions this journey to Zion, the Bible kind of has a dual meaning uh, with this uh, word. So in the Old Testament, when it mentions Zion, or sometimes it says Mount Zion, generally it was referring to the city of David, Jerusalem, where uh, the tabernacle was in this. And every Israelite, every follower of God uh, for festivals and to make the appropriate sacrifices would have to take a journey from where they are to this Zion, to Jerusalem, right? And so he's walking through there. He's, and the, the psalmist is just recounting of seeing people take that journey. Well, in the New Testament, it opens up this definition of Zion to not just mean a physical place of Jerusalem, but as Hebrews uh, later on expands, it opens up to mean the heavenly Jerusalem as well. So this Zion isn't just a physical place, it's God's dwelling place in the heavens, Right? And so whether you are an Israelite in the Old Testament or a Christian today, every single person is on this journey to Zion, on this journey to God, on this journey to heaven. And what the psalmist uh, mentions here, if you see in verse 6, it says, as they, on, on this journey, as they go through the valley of Baca, now, what is that? What was he recounting there? Well, there's a little bit of debate on if this is an actual physical place or not. There's a few options that historians have picked that this could be the place. Some say that it's not an actual physical place, but more of a representation of the journey itself. Let's get more specific into that. So the Valley of Baca, the, the, the Hebrew word Baca there, um, literally translates to weeps or weeping. And so there were these valleys uh, around Jerusalem that you would have to travel through. And generally in these valleys would grow what they call weeping trees. And the reason they called it that was because it, uh, it would drip resin off of its branches. You know, hence the weeping kind of aspect of it. And generally these valleys were just kind of dreary. Like you, you just did not like going through these things. And so this rider kind of opens up this, this metaphor to our life that as we are traveling on this journey to God, to Zion, 
that we're going to go through valleys of baka, valleys of weeping, valleys of suffering, valleys of struggle, valleys of hardship. Now, as I was writing this, if I can be honest with you, um, I was pretty convicted as I was studying this passage and I was writing this ser- or the sermon because I don't want to go through the valley of Baca. I don't know about y'all. I have struggles in my life and I don't want to go through them. The, this passage unfolds that um, it's God's strength that gets us through these valleys, but if I'm being honest with you, I don't want God's strength to get me through the valley. I want the valley to not be there at all. I don't want to go through the valley. I don't even want to go around the valley. I just want to, boom, be at my destination. I don't want it there at all. It's like Oklahoma. I don't want Oklahoma there at all. I've got to take my shots at Oklahoma when I can. My wife's family, as some of you probably know, uh, is in Missouri. And anytime we visit her family, we have to spend four or five hours through the wilderness of Oklahoma on two roads. Good gracious. And I know Arkansas is a way too. I don't want to go through Arkansas either. Texas. The whole world should be Texas. Anyways. Amen. I have a whole theory about how Texas might be the new heaven and the new earth, but I'm not going to get into it. I don't want to lose my job. Okay. So, so there's times that have struggles and there's times I have sufferings and seasons of darkness in my life. And I get frustrated, again, if I'm being honest, I get frustrated because I don't want to go through them. And I get frustrated with God, not because he doesn't have the strength to deal with it, but because he's not using his strength in the way that I think he should that I think God should just remove the problem, that he should fix the problem. But rather, as I walk through these valleys of Baca, and you might as well, I'm not met with God's strength fixing it, but rather I'm met with how God responded to Paul in 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes a thorn in his flesh. There's some kind of suffering in his life. He doesn't get into specific detail, but he describes it this way, that this thorn in his flesh torments him. And it says that he earnestly prayed to God three different times for him to take it away. And this was God's response. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And man, that's a hard response. If you're walking through that valley of Baca, if you're walking through the valley of suffering and you earnestly come to God and say, God, can you do something about this? And you're not met with God fixing the problem. You're met with God saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is enough for you. I don't want you to skip the problem. I want my grace and my strength to walk you through the problem. And that might be you today. You may be walking through one of the darkest seasons of your life and you are just fervently praying to God, fix it. And maybe the response isn't 
I'm going to fix it. The response is, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, an amazing thing happens whenever we can wrap our mind that God isn't there to just snap and make all of our problems go away, but God is there to empower us to walk through those problems. Something shifts in our mind, right? So Paul, let's pull up the passage. Um, in 2 Corinthians, uh, after this, God says to, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is what Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And so for Paul, after earnestly trying to get these sufferings to just leave him, when he's met with the grace of God, with the strength of God, his mindset completely shifts. And now he's not just trying to, he's not only not trying to get them to leave, but he's content with them. He's okay with them being there. They're his best buds now, right? He's there with them and he says, I'm going to boast in these things because my weaknesses, my sufferings, my hardships makes God's power shine all the more through me. Pulling it back to Psalm 84 we see the exact same thing happen. So uh, in verse six, so as they go through the valley of Baca of weeping, what do they do? They make it a place of springs. And so while everyone else who journeys through this valley, journeys through suffering, the journeys through dreariness, they sulk in it, they get bitter by it, they resent it, they can't wait till they're out of it. What do the people of God do through his strength? they make it a place of springs. They don't just try to survive it. They thrive through it. That's convicting for me. Man, I don't know about you guys. When I go through valleys of suffering, I'm bitter the whole way through. My vantage point isn't how can I make God's strength and power make this a place of refreshing springs. My thought is how many more days until I'm done with this? Our mindset needs to shift. Our, our blessing from God, our contentment from God, our happiness in God has nothing to do with the circumstances. It has everything to do with, are you leaning into God's strength in your life? And when we allow the valley of sufferings and weaknesses in this world, when we allow God's strength to work through that, it becomes an opportunity for Christ's power to be put on display. Let's keep going. So in order to find this, this asher, this, this blessing, this happiness, this contentment in the Lord, we've, we've seen the Lord is our rest. We've seen the Lord is our strength. And lastly, I believe he leans into the Lord being our joy. Let's pick it back up in verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. 
Now, I find this part of the psalm probably the most interesting, uh, considering the background that we know of the sons of Korah. So, as I mentioned earlier, the son, uh, the, the lineage of Korah is a pretty troubled one uh, in the past, and the first instance that we see of Korah dates all the way back to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, I'm going to get into some specifics about um, how the Israelites operated back then, and so if you're someone who likes all those logistical details, welcome, you're with me. If you don't like it, just bear with me. I promise it's, it's relevant. But back then, uh, they had built what was known as the tent of meeting or uh, the tabernacle, and this was like a portable dwelling place of God among his people as they would go from place to place. Now, the Levites, who were a tribe of the Israelites, were, were tasked with the, the, um, the job to maintain this tent of meeting, this tabernacle. And there were uh, four different groups within them. One group of the Levites was uh, meant to take care of the curtains of the tabernacle. One group of the Levites were meant to take care of the framing of the tabernacle. The third group was meant to take care of everything within the tabernacle, like the Ark of the Covenant and all that. And then the fourth group, uh, Aaron's descendants, were meant to uh, be the priests that would operate the tabernacle. All this went fine and dandy until Korah came along. Korah was in that third group. His job was to help maintain all of the stuff within the tabernacle, right? Everything went fine until Korah became dissatisfied and discontent with his job, right? Korah didn't want to be the guy that carried things. Korah wanted to be a priest, but he wasn't part of the line of Aaron, so he couldn't. So Korah and 250 of his closest friends decided, we're going to rebel against God, against Moses, against the Israelites, because this system is unjust and unfair. So they came up to Moses and said, no, we're not doing it anymore. To which Moses responded, how about this? Let's make a deal. If God is on my side, then God is going to cause a supernatural event where the... Um, the earth is going to open up and swallow all of you whole. And then he turned to everyone else and said, I would back up if I were you, right? Because what happened? The earth opened up, fire came out, swallowed them whole, all 250 of them were gone, showing that God was with Moses. That's the first instance that we see of Korah, right? It's not a, it's not a good first case, right? right? Pretty troubled history. We don't know too much about Korah and the descendants of Korah. There's a few isolated uh, instances that we see them throughout the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things that we know is that they were the door, or they became the doorkeepers and the custodians of the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And then we also know that they wrote a handful of the Psalms. Why is all that important? That's important because as we get into this last part of this psalm, we get to see the wonderful shift in the legacy of Korah. Because again, the, the, the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah are the ones that are writing this. So we get to see the start of Korah was full of discontentment and dissatisfaction in God and where they've placed them. They're unhappy and they're going to rebel and turn to evil against God because of that, right? So that's how it started. What we see here in this passage now is someone who's fully content in where God has placed them, is fully content in where God has them in their life and in the job that, has, uh, that he has placed them in, which, by the way, was a doorkeeper. 
it wasn't a glamorous job. This guy is not going to go down in history as a great conqueror, as a great leader. We don't even know his name. He was just a lowly doorkeeper. Yet, he had all the blessing and all the contentment and all the happiness in God. Why? Because he didn't find his purpose in his job. He found his purpose in God. And so he says this in verse 10. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, which, by the way, I think is a throwback all the way to Korah and the Moses and the Israelites. And what he's saying by that is, you can promise me all of the glory, all the riches, all the esteem, all the prestige, all the stuff of this world. But if it means that I have to leave God, I don't want it. I'd rather be here. I'd rather be a custodian cleaning up the house of God than abandon God and go anywhere else. Why? This is why. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He knew that it's only God that can give favor and honor to people. It's only God who can give good things. And so you may be a person that, that you, you look on social media and you see all these Post about how everyone has all this stuff and people getting new cars and new homes and new promotions and kids and traveling. And you're like, why doesn't God bless me? Know this, that contentment has nothing to do with that stuff. That you can have all that stuff and still be the most miserable person in the room. That we see here that doesn't matter the job, doesn't matter the car, doesn't matter the house, doesn't matter the family, doesn't matter the circumstances, doesn't matter the health or the sickness or the money or the things. Blessing in God, Asher, happiness, joy, contentment is found in God. Nothing else. Let me pray that we find that. Lord, we are so fortunate and thankful for your grace in our life. And I pray, God, that, that we would fully wrap our mind around that. That within your presence is everything. That we can have all the stuff in the world, but if we're not in a right relationship with you, in your presence, then we will always be lacking. We will always be searching for the next thing. We will never find rest. We will never know how to get through the valley of suffering. We will never know how to find true, everlasting joy. And so Lord, I just pray that you would convict us in this moment and that we would repent for when we have searched for that blessing outside of you. that you would convict us on how we have tried to replace you with a job, 
car, with a relationship, with stuff that doesn't matter. But rather we would have the thought that, that there is no place I'd rather be than sitting at the foot of your throne. That just an hour with you is better than a thousand elsewhere. We're going to move into a time of invitation. This time is really just for you to respond with however God is working in your life. And so I don't know where you are. You may be having a great week, uh, but you also might be living one of the darkest seasons of your life. And, and you're one of those people that you're like, I wish God would just fix this. And maybe what you need to do is just remind yourself that God's grace is sufficient and that God may not remove everything, but he will give you the strength to walk through it. And so maybe you just need to pray with God and just seek that grace. Maybe you're a person who's never fully found rest in God because you've never actually trusted in God. You've just come to church just to come to church because it's what your parents did. It's what you were taught to do. But you've never actually trusted in God in the finished work on the cross and in the resurrection. If that's you, we would love to talk to you. We would love to show you how you can place your faith in Christ and enter into that rest. However God is working in your life, we just want to give you that opportunity. We're always up here to pray with you, to talk with you. The, the altars are always available if you want to pray. You can pray where you are. You can sing. You can worship. However God is leading you to move, we encourage you to move. Can we all stand up? We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And again, however God is moving in your life, we encourage you to go.